Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting October 16, 2015, we get close-up consideration of the 70th regular session of the UN General Assembly, both in front of the cameras and backstage, from World Policy Institute fellow Jonathan Crystal at the UN. His WPJ blog post was headlined, Don't Reform the Security Council. We'll also point out top features in the journal's new 2015 fall issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, the White House seems willing to keep American forces in Afghanistan as a year-end deadline to get out looms. There are some 10,000 American troops there now, but there are growing concerns that the Taliban's recent advances in that war-torn country may necessitate keeping American boots on the ground longer than planned, perhaps much longer. Reports say the Taliban has now spread throughout more of Afghanistan than at any point since 2001, when the U.S. first attacked that country. The White House continues to resist calls to get more deeply involved in the messy, multi-sided conflict in Syria. President Obama maintaining that Russia is making a big mistake and getting sucked into a quagmire. He maintains that Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, is badly overextended. And is Iran becoming more belligerent now that it has signed that controversial nuclear deal with the U.S. and five other world powers? Some critics here in Washington say the answer is an unequivocal yes. They point to Tehran's test this week of a powerful new surface-to-surface missile. But the White House spin on this is that the missile is unrelated to the nuclear deal itself. Critics say otherwise, saying it's proof that Tehran is now more emboldened because of the nuclear deal. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. On the same issue. And therefore, though it is an important step forward and to be welcomed, we are no closer to a satisfactory outcome. We are not closer to an agreement. Remember that to amend the UN Charter, which is what is required to transform the membership of the Security Council, you need a two-thirds vote in the General Assembly. That's 128 countries have to agree out of the 193 in the UN. And you need, at the same time, that resolution to be ratified. And ratification is usually a parliamentary procedure. So by the parliaments of two-thirds of the member states, including those of all five permanent members. So you need a formula that is simultaneously acceptable to two-thirds of the world and is not unacceptable to the very five countries whose powers are going to be diluted. Before his election to the Indian Parliament, Shashi Tharoor was a top diplomat with the United Nations High Commission on Refugees, later special assistant to the Undersecretary General for Peacekeeping Operations. So it's with both national and international perspective that he joined the current call for reform of the UN Security Council, perhaps with a new seat for India. And after 23 years of discussion, a framework agreement for reform was adopted in September. But Tharoor also concedes there is little international agreement on the specifics of that reform, whether in terms of council process, expanded membership, or veto power. Indeed, some experts say no reform is needed, 
and that the dominance of the Council's five permanent members, Russia, China, Britain, France, and the United States, is actually more reflective of geopolitical reality today than it was in 1945. One of those experts is World Policy Institute fellow Jonathan Crystal, also a senior fellow at the Bard College Center for Civic Engagement. He made his argument in a World Policy Journal blog post under the headline, Don't Reform the Security Council. And we discussed it earlier in the week for this podcast, along with other top issues he's monitored at the latest UN General Assembly session. Uh, Jonathan Crystal, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thanks. Nice to be with you. How can you say the Security Council is more reflective of geopolitical reality today than it was in 1945, given how the world has changed, such progress in Africa, Asia, Latin America? It's true. I mean, there is no doubt that the world now is different than it was uh, in 1945. Um, but I would say, you know, the one thing that hasn't changed um, is the dominance of the great powers. In fact, I would say these great powers are more dominant now uh, than they were at the time. You know, in 1945, France and China were really not in particularly great shape. Uh, and since the, and the only nuclear power was the United States. And when we say that the world has changed, there are far more um, states in Africa at all than there were uh, at the time. Um, India is, of course, uh, a major power. Uh, Germany is a major power. Uh, again, Brazil is a major power. But when we talk about these states as being major powers, what we're really talking about are, are economic strength. And economic strength is important. But if we talk about worldwide power projection and military strength, these are the five that um, that are the most powerful. They are the five that really um, are able to do anything um, almost anywhere to some degree. Uh, and the founders of the UN realized that if you wanted the um, organization to function effectively, then you would need a unanimity of the great powers uh, rather than unanimity of the whole. Critics of the current Security Council feel it's frustrated by the power that comes with the veto of permanent members. You write that's looking at it backwards. Say more. Right. So people say that the veto is able to frustrate progress or the veto is able to um, ensure that things uh, don't change in certain regions. For recently in the, in the Syria uh, crisis, people have said that uh, if there were no veto power, then we would have some sort of unified response. But that's a perfect example of, of the opposite. You know, Russia does not need a veto in the UN Security Council to act unilaterally in Syria. Uh, it has the power to do so anyway. The United States uh, in the Iraq War wanted to get the approval of the Security Council. It was clear that it wasn't going to get it, and so it sidelined it and it acted anyway. Um, France has intervened in Africa more than 50 times, uh, some, uh, sometimes with Security Council approval and sometimes without it. Um, the UK joined joined the U.S. on the Iraq War. And, you know, the states are, these are the states that are able to do whatever they want, and no one is going to stop them. Um, and that's what gives them all the power, not the veto. The veto, in fact, makes it a little bit more 
um, makes things a little bit more stable because rather than have to sideline the Security Council or take more unilateral action, they can just veto things um, um, right here at a conference room in New York City rather than uh, on the battlefield. Within the Council's own operations, you note that uh, even in, in with the current rules, uh, the P5 can be outvoted, though, as you suggest, not necessarily restrained out in the real world. Explain that. Sure. So the Security Council is made up of 15 members. You know, you have the five permanent members and you have 10 non-permanent members. And in order for anything to pass, you need nine votes uh, without a veto. So you need the unanimity of the great powers plus four of the smaller states. Uh, you don't need all five um, permanent members to vote yes. They could abstain, or they could actually just not even be, be present physically for the vote um, rather than issue a, a formal abstention, uh, which was the case in, in the Korean War. And the uh, so you always need smaller states on board if you want to get anything um, to get anything passed. But, you know, the Iraq War is a great example. We had this weird time um, that, you know, you probably uh, remember well, where on the 24-hour news networks, you had analysts with uh, flags of Angola and Jamaica and stuff talking, well, will, will Jamaica support the United States and this? And it was this kind of weird um, scene that, you know, I haven't seen, at least in the mainstream media so far. And in the end, it turned out that some of those smaller states weren't going to support us. Um, but we just did it anyway. Um, but there is a, it does provide a venue for uh, the um, the largest, most militarily powerful states in the system to work with uh, smaller states and lesser powers um, to try to achieve some sort of consensus, um, some sort of agreement on priorities um, for the international community. Uh, we saw this just um, a few days ago relating to uh, South Sudan, and um, we see it in other uh, places as well. Let's explore the lack of agreement on key specifics of reform covered by the framework. First, expansion of members. Now, by how much, how to choose them, and the power they should get. Well, this is um, really where, you know, the devil is in the details. So, you have every, everyone uh, has basically agreed that it, the Security Council will be reformed. I don't think it actually will be reformed, and I don't think anyone really thinks it will be reformed, but we have agreement that it will be. And so the question now um, is how. Um, there are a few major um, proposals. One is to add permanent members with the veto. And the states that are talked about are uh, India, Germany, Brazil, um, and Japan. Uh, and those get talked about for a variety of reasons, not least of which is that the United States has said we'll support a permanent seat with the veto for Japan and India, which is easy for us to say because we know uh, China will veto that. Um, and France and the United Kingdom have both supported a permanent seat for Germany, although one supports it with the veto and one without. But it's easy for them to say because you're not going to get uh, – you're not going to have – Security Council reform that gives more power to Western Europe. So that's really not going to happen either. And you're not really going to have the one non-Spanish-speaking state in uh, Latin America um, represent that region either. Um, but, that's, but that's something that's, that's 
uh, talked about. The other idea is to have permanent members that don't have the veto power. Uh, and again, it's the same collection of states that are, are generally talked about. Uh, and then you have this idea of, well, we'll have a seat for Africa, because everyone, and I'll put everyone in, in air quotes, everyone agrees that Africa needs greater representation. But of course, who would, who would that be? There is no single dominant player in Africa. Um, and I don't think most sub-Saharan states would agree to South Africa. I think Nigeria is highly problematic, um, and, and Kenya is probably not dominant enough in any ways to, to really justify that either. So there's this idea, well, we'll make a permanent seat for Africa. Maybe even that has the veto, maybe not, uh, but that will rotate, and, and different African states will, will have it. You also have uh, the idea of um, expanding it, which has happened before, just adding more non-permanent members. Uh, and then you have the idea of having um, a third category where you have some states like Germany or Brazil, whoever, that on um, a kind of a trial basis have long terms um, that can be renewed. The non-permanent members cannot be renewed, so that would stay for maybe six years and then they could just be renewed indefinitely. But when you look at the agreement, everyone disagrees on these exact numbers. You have some states that will say, well, the total, has, the total number of seats on the council can't be more than 18. And then you'll have other states that say, well, it can't be less than 18. And everyone kind of has a slightly different take. Uh, North Korea, for example, their basically entire contribution to the process is dedicated to making sure that Japan does not end up on the Security Council. Uh, and that's pretty much the crux of, of everything that they've, that they've talked about. Uh, and so do you have almost, you know, I'm not a mathematician. I haven't taken math in a long time. But if you were to look at the combination of possible um, outcomes contained in, again, what I was, the, the framework agreement, which is, is actually what it's called, although it probably belongs in air quotes, you're talking about use, probably using the word factorial. I feel like I remember that from math class. Some sort of infinite, near infinite number of possibilities. So this agreement really ultimately agrees to nothing. Then there's the issue of transparency. What does that mean in this case? Why is it important? Well, right now the Security Council in general um, holds its meetings behind closed doors. Um, they're not, um, not only are they not open to the public, they're not open to anyone except the members of the Security Council and uh, whatever state is being discussed. So, for example, again, um, earlier in the session, they were talking about uh, South Sudan, and a bit uh, at the very beginning, they were talking about Haiti. And in those instances, you know, Haiti can appear, uh, and South Sudan can appear. Um, they, they don't have to, but they're entitled to appear. Um, but otherwise, it's done uh, entirely in secret, and so many states would like to see those either um, opened, not, again, not necessarily to the public, but to the other member states of the UN, that they can be present for the meetings. Uh, maybe, maybe not even to speak, but just to be present and hear and see what's going on. Uh, another idea um, is actually to have it be open um, and, and webcast or simulcast uh, somehow. And then the other idea is to publish uh, transcripts or minutes after the fact. 
and and again, this is this has wide support among the smaller states, but it also presents a tremendous problem. And I think that you know, I um, obviously I, I personally am follow politics, and I watch a lot of C-SPAN. I watch a lot of 24-hour news networks, but I don't think these things have been particularly good for American democracy. Um, and I don't think that um, making public the Security Council proceedings, uh, it will be particularly good for outcomes in the Security Council or at the UN. Uh, I mean, there's a reason I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm more of a commentator than a, a journalist because I, I like to talk and not, not to listen, I guess. Um, but there's a reason why you have discussions be off the record. I mean, you get better you get better information off the record. People can speak more freely. And the conversations that Russia and the United States has, for example, are probably very different behind closed doors than – maybe that's not the best example. That might be actually probably more similar. But discussions are very different behind closed doors than they are to the press. And do we really want to take this one venue we have where – the world leaders get together, foreign ministers get together, um, and in this case, in the case of the Security Council, kind of key world leaders, and and open that to to the public. I think it will result in the Security Council and the UN system being sidelined more than it is. Speakers playing to their own constituencies in a way they don't have to when they're only talking to one another. You say there is growing interest in a rule to eliminate the veto on some key issues. Yeah, so that's a, a fairly new idea, or at least it's, it's gaining a lot of traction. Um, and so I, I was at uh, the major meetings about this, um, and, and France uh, is kind of in the lead. They're not the only one in the lead, but um, France is most notable for this because it is a permanent member of the Security Council. And what they said is, well, we should do away with the veto on of, uh, issues that deal with war crimes, crimes against humanity, um, and uh, genocide, uh, which are basically the crimes that the International Criminal Court deals with. Um, so they say, well, we can't, we shouldn't allow the permanent members to insulate themselves or to protect others. Uh, is, is more what it's about to protect others from the consequences of their actions through the veto power. Um, and I will say, you know, that was a, um, uh, there were a lot of people in the room for that meeting. Uh, there were a lot of foreign ministers in the room for that meeting, um, including the French foreign minister who, who led the meeting. Um, Amal Clooney, George Clooney's wife, was there for some reason. Um, seemed to be take, people taking a lot of pictures with her. Uh, and everyone talked about it. Everyone kind of uh, 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 said what was on their mind. And it was a big photo op. Um, and, then, and then people went their separate ways after about 38 minutes. But... Um, but it, it has been talked about in the halls, and people have been talking about it a lot. And I don't think that this will go anywhere either, but it has some potential. Um, the reason it has potential is that it will look very bad to oppose this type of reform. But it will probably end up being opposed, including by the United States, I, I suspect, 
because we will fear, just like we do with the International Criminal Court, that it will be used politically against us. And, and, and it won't just be us. Russia uh, and China will think this as well. Um, and, and in their case, in Russia's case in particular, they'll be afraid it will be used against Assad. But the United States will be afraid that, well, what happens when some other state has a problem with us or there's some issue that relates to us that comes before the Security Council and someone says, okay, well, it's crimes against humanity, so now it's not subject to the veto. We'll be afraid of the political use of it and that all it will take is for something to be labeled as one of these crimes and to limit the use of the veto. So I don't think it's a non-starter. I mean, in some sense, it's already started. But I would be surprised that um, if, it, if it is adopted, unless it really breaks through to the media, uh, worldwide media everywhere, and, you know, we, we don't, that could happen in the United States. You know, if Russia doesn't want it to break through in the media there, it's not going to. It's not going to happen there. Um, and so I don't. I don't think that that will, will will ultimately pass either. There are many more disagreements over the framework for reform. What sort of timeline and process is there for resolving them? That's a good question. And you know, there's not there's not any sort of formal timeline. Um, I think it's been talked about, uh, as you mentioned in your intro, for many years. Uh, and They've been negotiating this particular agreement for 10 years. It was agreed to well before that that there would be reform. But uh, there is some momentum, and, and I think that's probably why um, France and others have put forward some interesting and r relatively feasible options. But in order for reform to pass, it will have to pass the Security Council as it stands. So the permanent members can veto any reform to the structure of the council. And this is where I have the hardest time imagining that any state is going to vote itself, is going to dilute its own power when it doesn't have to. And, you know, as hard as it is to reach agreement in the Security Council among these five, again, plus four of the other, of the other ten that need to be on board, why would anyone agree to make it harder by adding more members, either members that you need to have on board or more members, some of which you need to convince? Um, and so I think that, you know, this, this topic isn't going to go away, but you know, right now, you know, in, uh, over in the UN headquarters building and the secretariat, this is not the number one thing. You know, Syria and the other things have overshadowed this. So there is some momentum uh, that will probably continue, but it's something that is kind of high visibility and low stakes. And I say low stakes because I don't think anyone thinks it's really going to happen, at least any major reform. But it's high visibility because it gets a lot of people talking. It brings a lot of people to the room. It's something that a lot of the smaller states care about deeply. And when you have this kind of low stakes, high visibility, I think you're going to see it continue to be talked about, um, continue to be brought up, new proposals constantly um, going on. And, and particularly the smaller states uh, are, are definitely not going to let it go, and, and probably nor should they. You know, I don't think it should happen, but I also understand why the smaller states want it to. It's in their interest for it to happen. What about some talk you've heard of sidestepping the issue of Security Council reform and instead changing the way the Secretary General is selected? Right, so one way that would be uh, another interesting idea that, that could happen is to 
take away the role of the so right now, the Secretary General is selected by the five members of the five permanent members behind closed doors. The UN Charter gives very little um, guidance as to how this process um, should be. The, the Charter says the Secretary General should be um, uh, recommended by the uh, past, recommended by the General Assembly, or recommended by. Sorry, pardon me. Passed by the General Assembly on the recommendation of the Security Council. But in practice, because the General Assembly, um, if they're given one option, and that option is someone coming from the Permanent Five, because otherwise it will get vetoed, then that's who it is. And so the talk now is to open up that process and to have it be, and there's, this is, in some ways, this isn't, this debate isn't as far along, but it will actually probably move much faster because there's pressure to do it. And to have it either be an open process uh, inside the Security Council that is open to public discussion, or to reverse the process and really have the General Assembly um, perhaps present a list of a few possible names to the Security Council, and the Security Council can pick from those. There are, you know, some ways they could do it um, in that that might some changes they could make that might happen and the reason I say it might happen is this would be an easy way for the permanent members of the Security Council um, to give the General Assembly more power um, because right now the Secretary General is often seen as being kind of a, a, a pawn of the P5, let's say. And that's a little bit unfair, to, particularly to some of the Secretary Generals, Secretaries General who have been fairly independent. But um, give someone who is not necessarily beholden to the P5. Um, clearly someone that they would approve of, but that doesn't owe their position them and, and is not seen as being um, totally innocuous um, and, and not willing to shake things up. So that, that's been discussed. You know, it's uh, Estonia, uh, Finland, and Costa Rica actually are three that are, that are um, in the lead on this. Um, and they basically want to ensure that no single power can control who becomes Secretary General. I'm not sure if that has been totally clear. Let's look at some major issues beyond the UN's own operations now being discussed at the General Assembly session formally and informally, beginning with the war in Syria. Some see major new influence from Moscow from its intervention on behalf of Bashar al-Assad against both Syrian rebels and the ever-expanding Islamic State. Uh, London and Washington already seem to be stepping back despite domestic criticism. Others see Russia heading for a quagmire much like the one that humbled it in Afghanistan. What's your view? Well, I don't think that it's going to be a quagmire for Russia in the way that Afghanistan was um, was for them in the in the 80s. Uh, I think that they have um, an easier goal, um, and they have uh, is one reason. Um, they are not going to have a massive land army forcibly occupy some of Syria. Of course, I've been wrong before. But I don't think it's going in that direction now, and it probably won't so long as they're able to do what they want to do with um, a smaller footprint. And they're trying to maintain Assad's position and weaken his opponents in a way that he can fill in that vacuum. 
But the bigger reason is that, unlike in Afghanistan, they are largely not facing um, a rebel army that is backed by the United States. Now, that's technically not true, right? We are kind of backing a rebel army that will ultimately be fighting Russia that is, um, who is backing Assad. But our rebel army, as General Allen testified a couple of weeks ago, is, you know, we've got like four or five people. Um, we've gotten equipment to uh, disparate other groups, um, of whom there are many, many of whom are rivals with each other. Um, they're not really, the only real unified opposition Russia faces is ISIS, who we're also trying to degrade. So there is this danger of it being a kind of low-level proxy uh, an accidental proxy war, Russia versus the United States in this case, or, or the Russian-led coalition versus our coalition. But, you know, it's not going to be like the intention, almost intentional proxy war that they faced in Afghanistan in the 80s, um, which is not politically feasible for the United States to, to get involved in that way. Uh, and so I think that it, they'll have a bit of an easier time of it. That said, they're not going to have an easy time. It's all relative. This is Syria is an incredibly difficult problem. Every outcome is terrible, um, and it's going to be um, festering there for a long time. And the, the refugee crisis will continue no matter how it ends. Um, and at the best case scenario um, for Russia in. Syria does not help Iraq or other areas in the region achieve any level of stability. It probably makes it worse. And what future for Assad? You know, I think Assad um, is probably, if I had to say now, I would say Assad ends up as a fairly weak mayor of Damascus. Um, that his, his title remains the same. Um, but that he ends up as the, the president of Syria with control over uh, Damascus and a limited area, uh, and the rest controlled by um, different groups, either on the ground or probably in the, in the longer term, more realistically, a no-fly zone. Uh, and we end up with a situation similar to what we had in Iraq uh, in the 90s. Um, but, you know, I do think that... Um, the U.S. administration is wrong about this. I think that our insistence on um, Assad having to go um, sounds great. It's, it's consistent. Um, but, you know, it, it, I don't think it matches with the reality on the ground. We're not willing to do what it takes to get rid of Assad. Um, and if we want stability, I think Assad is probably going to be a part of that solution. It's going to make a lot of people upset. A lot of people will be angry about it, um, but and understandably so. But he's not the worst actor in Syria anymore. Um, and we have a hard time kind of shifting gears that way uh, and, and working with someone after we've worked so hard against them. Of course, this is also someone who we worked with for a long time before. Um, so, I, you know, I think Assad is going to be around for a while. Um, what what are you hearing about continued Russian provocations in Ukraine and the, the Western response? Well, this is a, I, I think this is in some ways a, a great time to be Russia in Ukraine um, because everybody is so focused on Syria. Uh, everyone's focused on Syria. Every here in this country, we're also talking about the um, election. I think that people are not paying quite as much attention uh, as they were. Um, 
uh, and it isn't probably the number one or number two or maybe even number three thing that, that I would hear talk about at the UN. Um, because in part because people know that there's not much that can be done. Um, so I think that, we're, you know, I, I think the status quo will prevail um, in, in Ukraine for a while um, because I don't think Russia is going to want to – they are pushing the line in the Syria area with their flights into Turkey and things like that, which are incredibly dangerous. A military, basically a military incursion into NATO, even by air, is in some ways more dangerous than further aggression in Ukraine. Um, and I think that they, uh, I think Putin is fairly cautious about these things. And I think he has done a great job of knowing what he can get away with without provoking a particularly harsh U.S. response. Um, I hope that he stays cautious about that. Um, uh, but, you know, no one has a greater interest in not confronting the U.S. militarily um, than he does, um, followed closely by uh, the United States. What did you hear about the tsunami of refugees reaching Europe from Syria and other war-torn and impoverished areas? Are there ideas for how it can be better handled? Everyone has an idea. That's what I would say. <laughs> but um, but there's, not, there's not any sort of a major consensus about it. Uh, the Security Council um, reached an agreement that I, I don't think has yet been um, totally codified yet to allow all member states to um, legally interdict any ship crossing the Mediterranean that they suspect has people in it. Uh, I, I don't mean people like passengers. I mean, have refugees um, in it, and that's a way to, to try to ensure that you know, cheap ships and stuff don't don't capsize, or we have any of these other tragedies. But nobody has any good answers to this. Um, I think there are some interest, some good ideas along the sidelines for 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 managing the issue. Uh, Gordon Brown, Gordon Brown kind of pop, pops up uh, every couple of days, um, talking about a proposal of his uh, to create a net, uh, an international emergency fund to get schools up and running um, in some of these camps. Um, uh, where there are, where there is kind of education being provided, but more formally, so people have records of it. I thought that was a very interesting idea, and there's a lot of good ideas like that, and a lot of those ideas, those type of ideas, uh, are getting traction and probably um, probably will come to fruition. But when it comes to what to do about the flow of migrants, generally speaking. There's, everyone is talking about it. There's no consensus. No one has any good idea. Um, and I think, you know, this is going to continue even after there's stability um, uh, in Syria because you have, and Libya, you'll have so many people who have migrated to Western Europe, um, and they're going to have a lot of family back home who are going to want to join them. And so this flow is going to go on for a long time. Uh, and it's a major, major issue, uh, and it's it's not going away. And I think everyone realizes that it's dominated a lot of discussion, but um, it, it's dominated it because some, nobody has any any good solutions. But it really has overshadowed almost everything else going on in the world. I would say. What expectations are you hearing about the Iran nuclear deal, the likely effectiveness of inspections, the stepped-up military assistance for Israel and other regional powers to counter Tehran's non-nuclear provocations uh, that are financed after sanctions are lifted? 
Well, everyone, you know, one of the things at the general debate um, at the start of the GA uh, is with the extremely notable exception of, uh, and understandable exception of, of Netanyahu, um, everyone um, is strongly in favor and supportive of the Iran deal. I don't, didn't hear it. Um, um, obviously, some of the Arab states uh, are not, but the only person, the only state to strongly focus the entirety of the remarks, at least, and, and diplomatic energy, um, was uh, Netanyahu in his, in his speech at the GA. Um, so everyone is supportive of it, and I think that everyone thinks it will more or less work, at least. Um, that the inspections will work and that it will more or less um, keep Iran from getting nuclear weapons. Personally, I, I don't think that it will, though I am supportive of the deal. Um, but I think that the people... But I think that nobody is under any illusions that it will rein in Iran's activities elsewhere. And I think that those few people who might have thought that definitely don't think it now after um, a more overt, a formal uh, agreement between Iran and Russia on military intervention in Syria. Um, I think that that took some people off guard. Uh, but I also, you know, I don't think in the diplomatic community, maybe more so than the, in general, I, I think people are able to separate these things. And people realize, well, you can have an agreement on the nuclear part, but that doesn't mean Iran is all of a sudden going to change its behavior anywhere else. Uh, and, in fact, I think we've seen that, that that's, um, that's been the case so far, and it, it probably will continue to be. What uh, reactions are you seeing to step-up Palestinian attacks on Israelis uh, and Israeli counterattacks after President uh, Mahmoud Abbas raised the Palestinian flag and said his administration will cease honoring the agreement signed with Israel? Is it a new intifada? Well, this is something that is so... Um, it's been extremely interesting to me where you see a difference, a real difference between, um, you know, in the halls at the, at the UN and, and I guess out in the world. Uh, what I mean by that is sort of like three things. One, um, when he gave that speech, the reaction were crickets uh, inside the UN. Um, everyone he had said in advance he was going to deliver some sort of bombshell. And so there were a lot of people paying close attention to that speech, um, more so than most. Um, and it was crickets. And in um, just eating lunch afterwards, you know, just a random assortment of, of, of people from different levels, you know, inside the UN, and everyone is kind of saying, that's it? Like, that was the bombshell? And kind of the talk was like, why did he even bother to say there would be a bombshell? Like, now everyone's just disappointed. Like, why? What, what, is, he, what is he saying? Um, and, then, and then, of course, they had, a, right after that, there was the raising of the um, Palestinian Authority flag, which was uh, jam-packed. I was kind of, I had walked past it a couple of times on, on my way to other places. It was the kind of thing where everybody wanted to make sure that everybody else saw that they were there for it. Um, so it was very crowded, everyone putting in an appearance. And I don't think anyone, including me at the time, really anticipated that there would be any major um, increase in violence. But, you know, I, I wouldn't tie what's happening now um, necessarily to to um, a 
Abbas or the speech, because I'm not sure how much the Palestinians pay that much attention to Abbas. Um, I think it's from um, the kind of provocations, the Palestinian provocations about um, Israeli incursions uh, at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which, which I don't think are real. I mean, I think the provocations are real. I don't think Israel has, has attempted to upset the status quo. I'm not sure why they would. I don't think we've seen any real evidence of that, other than people talking about it. Um, but that has been blown up quite, a, no pun intended, I guess, quite effectively um, in getting, rallying people kind of to the streets. I don't know if we're at the point of a third intifada yet. I fear maybe that we are. But, you know, it's extremely bad timing for the Palestinians to have a third intifada right now if they want people to really pay attention. Because, you know, the, the Syria, Syria on its own um, as an issue, Russia on its own as an issue, meaning Russia's involvement in Ukraine and Syria, that along with um, a lot of talk uh, um, at the UN, at least, of sustainable development goals. Um, but a lot at the Iran deal, there's so much else going on in the region, and the migration, of course, that I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure they're going to get the media traction that there was in the first and second intifada. Um, maybe in among the, the kind of extreme um, left and right-wing press, but I, I, I'm not sure it's going to be um, be as visible. Jonathan Crystal, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. World Policy Institute fellow Jonathan Crystal is also a senior fellow at the Bard College Center for Civic Engagement and now covering the current United Nations General Assembly session. His recent World Policy Journal blog post is headlined, Don't Reform the Security Council. Featured in a special food fight section of the New World Policy Journal 2015 fall issue, you'll find a conversation with Sogolen Royal, France's Minister of Ecology, Sustainable Development and Energy, about feeding the world, plus articles on smaller, smarter, and more productive approaches to agriculture, and on cuisine, controversy, and nationalism. And listen next week when our podcast will consider the dark side of the food chain, an amazing amount of product and produce lost or wasted around the globe. Science and ecology writer Amy G. McDermott surveyed the problem for the fall issue under the headline, Waste Not. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.